Good morning again. It's hard to believe we've already made it to Friday, sadly. Still haven't convinced Steve to have a cup of coffee with me, but that's okay. Pray for his salvation. <laughs> now, there is emerging evidence, medically speaking, that uh, one to two cups of coffee a day actually is probably good for you. Protects, protects your... Uh, how do you really feel, brother? You, oh, he may have had more than one or two this morning. I'm just saying. Whew, that was pretty rapid. Okay, so let's move on to less controversial things. Esther, shall we turn to the book of Esther, please? And let me just say on a, a very personal note, I appreciated all the well wishes yesterday. Uh, it'll be fun to celebrate Bethany's birthday today, but thank you for everyone's uh, kind words to me. I can't think of a better way to spend my birthday than to spend it, to have spent it uh, here with my family, uh, with each of you, and the opportunity to preach the gospel of our blessed God last night. And let's pray that it would have an impact and effect. We had a number of visitors here last night, some individuals we've had a chance to chat with a little bit, so please pray for that and um, that the Word of God will not, of course, return void. So we've now turned to the book of Esther. We've thought a lot, hopefully, together about Ezra. Nehemiah and Esther. And these three books are really clustered together. One of the reasons why we've put them together this week. Tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll talk a little bit about Job, which interestingly is a very different time frame, uh, but, but uh, appropriately uh, brought together with these three books. These three books are really occurring, historically speaking, at the very end of uh, the Old Testament, whereas uh, Job, as we'll see tomorrow, was probably a contemporary of Abraham. So really, as you all now know with your uh, expertise in dates, at least 1,500 years before uh, the time that we're dealing with today. But let's take some time to think a little bit about the book of Esther. The children here today probably know a little bit about Esther and the story. And we're going to read through parts of that story and make a few comments as we go along and then come to our uh, handout here that will give us more of the background, our outline, and the major lessons that we have for the day. So let's start at the very start of the book, chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Assyrius, that is, Assyrius, which reigned from India even to Ethiopia and over 170 and 20, 107 and 20 provinces, that in those days when the king sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, you may remember that uh, Shushan was one of the critical Persian cities. This is where uh, Nehemiah was uh, at the start of his book. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast and to all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days. So, a hundred and eighty day party. Like, I'm happy with the six day party in Yosemite. <laughs> um, imagine a hundred and eighty days of it. Now, it's not likely that they had a continuous party for 180 days. There was, I'm sure, interruptions in between, and this was kind of an ancient phenomenon to have these feasts that lasted for long periods of time. But let's just say uh, this was quite the party. And when, and, and when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present at Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Because what do you do at the end of a 180-day par party? You have another one, right? So seven days. Uh, were with white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. Imagine 
just try and picture uh, what this would look like. This was not uh, staying at uh, the, the, the one-star hotel, right? This was, there was no expense spared. Uh, this was sort of the Awani on steroids. You know, this was the ultimate uh, place uh, for them to go and stay. And they gave them drink and vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another. So no two people had the same gold vessel they were drinking out of. That was a sign of excess. That was a sign of wealth. That you don't have the, you know, the, the same uh, glasses and cups and cutlery and whatever else for individuals. They were all uh, unique and different. And royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. Obviously, he had his own state vineyard uh, and, uh, and, and wine. By the way, uh, there is an interesting theme in the scripture between kings and their vineyards. And that's just, uh, I haven't given you really much homework this week. Some of you know me, like to know that I drop off ideas and things to follow up. You know, we've given you some big time homework for the next year. But kings and vineyards, notice that theme together. There's several of them that are mentioned. You might want to look into because I think there's some unique lessons that I won't steal from your own learning uh, that you could look at to yourself. Verse 8, and the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. So they had a law of drinking. That they, meaning they wanted to drink. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Now all of a sudden we start to see the wheels are falling off. At one point it looks like, you know, they've reached this incredible uh, uh, state as, a, as an empire. This was perhaps one of the peaks of the Persian Empire, which was never really established to this day. When you think of the area of Persia today, there's still tremendous struggle there. And they take what looks initially to be beautiful and wonderful in a festivity and take it too far. Which, by the way, is another simple principle of sin, isn't it? That sin corrupts what is initially good and takes it too far. That's what happens with our personalities. Steve was joking about his, his, his temper, but that, that intensity that Steve brings to us, God bless him, is, is God-given. Right? Peter is an excellent example of that. Peter was someone who had that vehemence for God. The problem was sin takes it a bit too far, and, and, and what's supposed to be a straight way gets a little bit crooked, and so he overdoes it and loses his temper and yells and screams and swears and says that he didn't know the Lord Jesus when, of course, he did. So Don't despise your God-given personality, per se. The problem is sin affects us, and God help us to know when we can cross that line too far. One day the crooked way shall be made straight and sin will be removed. And our personalities, I, still, I think we will still be very unique individuals in heaven. It's not that we're all going to be sort of amassed together as if we're just robots. And that the, the person that the Lord intended you to be with that beautiful character and personality that you have will be preserved and be restored. And we're talking so much about husbands and wives this week. Imagine... And you share when you know someone as closely as Heather knows me and I know Heather, what will it be like, uh, uh, I'm sure very happy for Heather, uh, when the sin of my life is removed to see what God really intended us as individuals to be. It's remarkable when we think that God has that plan for you. And now we stumble and we struggle and, and, and sometimes it, it frustrates you, doesn't it? Knowing that you have that sinful pension. And someday that will be of course, taken away. So according to the end of verse 8, according to every man's pleasure, also Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house which belongeth 
uh, to the king. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, it's sort of a gentle way of saying he was maybe a bit more merry than he should have been with the wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Nabagtha, Zithar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that, that served in the presence of Osiris the king, to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the, royal, uh, with, the, with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. This is not the only time something like this happened. I've seen it happen before when kings get drunk and the things that they want to do. This is a, a phenomenon, of course, you see even in the New Testament. But the queen Vashti refused to come to the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned within him. He was trying to, frankly, not uplift his wife, but denigrate his wife in front of his colleagues and his friends. And she refused. This is a theme that we're going to see in this book. When people have tried to put down women, how in very much reverse form the outcome becomes. We see this several times in the Old Testament when women were not given their rightful place, when they were tried to put, put down in a place that was inappropriate, how the Lord vindicated them. It's remarkable, really. Very often, we have you know, classic examples like in the book of Judges, where, where, where women are repeatedly in the book are, are pushed down or not given their right place or not respected the way they should, and the Lord vindicates for them. It's not sort of a women's lib movement per se, but it's God recognizing, as we've been hearing from Steve this week, the issue of equality is not there. We're equal. A different role doesn't affect equality. And, and when, uh, uh, very often, gentlemen, if I can speak to us for a moment, when, as we see in the book of Judges and many other places, when men did not fulfill the role that we were meant to fulfill, the Lord can demonstrate to us that he'll raise a woman to take that place. When the judges were too afraid to face the enemy, you know, he comes and says, well, I'm a little afraid of the enemy, but you know, um, Deborah, if you, if you come with me, then I'll go do it. Really? I mean, no disrespect to Deborah, but she wasn't particularly well known as a soldier, a soldieress. <laughs> so can you imagine this man saying, I'll go to battle, but only if you come with me. So naturally she responds and says, okay, fine, but let it know that the victory is going to go down in the name of a woman. And of course she wasn't speaking about herself. She was speaking about jail. And some of you know the story of jail. As we often say, it doesn't exactly make the top ten in the uh, Sunday school stories because it's um, slightly graphic. But um, she made her point, right? <laughs> That's right. So I don't, don't, don't get into a pun war with me. and That would, that would be a problem. But um, no, nonetheless, uh, yes, she, she, um, she uh, was, was rather precise in, in trying to... Uh, and she did what no male soldier in the whole army could do. If you don't know the story, suffice to say that she had an interesting use of a tent peg that, um, that sort of went through the enemy's head. And for those who haven't heard me say it before, you go back to the book of Judges and pair it up with First and Second Samuel, and there are heads everywhere. The Lord is teaching us about heads. There are big heads. There are little heads. There are heads caught in trees. There are heads cut off. There are heads that get tent pegged. There are heads with big hair. I mean, there's, 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 lot, there's a, clearly a theme there with heads. But the point being here is that the woman was able to do what the male soldiers were not able to do. And she did it 
with the utensils that she would use every day, her hammer and her tent peg, is there was her responsibility to put up and take down the tent. So God's plan for you is to use the very things that you have already. What skills you have, what opportunities you have, what's around you, you can use for the greater glory of God. Not that I'm suggesting you go and tent peg someone, right? Don't go back over to housekeeping and take your tent down and get that tent peg and try to look for the enemy. But, but the Lord used her in a very uh, unique way. And so here, Vashti, I'm not saying that Vashti was spiritual per se in the way that she did this, but she was demonstrating that it was not right for her to be paraded around like a pageant for the sake of the drunk king and the women around him and the, and the men uh, around him. Uh, come down to chapter 2, verse 5. As you see in our handout, I have lots of bits and pieces that I want you to read because I, I know you likely know most of the story, but I want to fill in a lot of this detail. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Interesting that he comes from the tribe of Benjamin, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Je- uh, Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So we see already something unique about this man. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. They'd been carried away in captivity. And when this poor woman's uh, or young girl's parents had died, he took her in as her own. Now, we'll see the whole context of the story of Esther. Some have questioned, both uh, from the Judaic front and the Christian front. There are people who've questioned the canonicity of Esther, have wondered, is Esther really an Old Testament book? As you, you probably know already, the Lord by name is actually never mentioned in the book. Now, there are those who say he's there in acronym form in the Hebrew language, and we might be able to accept that. But, but we know from, passive, from simple reading over it that there's no precise mention of the Lord. Number two, we're, we're dealing here with a group of Jews who did not return with Zerubbabel, who stayed in captivity. Now, again, much like the story I told of the Gibeonites, it's a good thing God's in charge of compassion instead of you and I. Because we might stop the story right there and say, okay, wait a minute. You got a group of people who didn't go back with Zerubbabel. They probably had the chance to do that, but they decided to stay in captivity. And the Lord's not mentioned in this book. Yeah, let's take the book out. But I think one of the great lessons we learned from this book, that even even under these circumstances, even without the explicit reference to the Lord, you can't help but see God's providence throughout this book. You cannot help but see the principles, some of which we've already been learning from Steve already, the principles of humility, the principles of loyalty that produce an end that still affects people today, as we'll see in the Feast of Purim. So back down to the story here, verse 8. So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard. And so, by the way, the king in the interim was so unhappy with Vashti that he dispensed with her and was now looking for a new queen. Um, And when uh, maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Haggai. 
uh, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him. And he speedily gave her things for the purification, with such things as belongeth to her, and seven maidens which were meet to be given to her out of the king's house, that he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of women. Esther had not shown her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged it that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. And again, we might look at this and say, you're, you're betraying your heritage. Shouldn't you tell everybody? Shouldn't you have a sign? Shouldn't you wear a big t-shirt that says, I'm a Jew? Well, we know from the history of the human race that there has been, tragically, a hatred and anti-Semitism that is almost incomprehensible. Why is it that this nation of all nations has been so hated over the decades and the centuries of human history? Why is it this nation that in a sense is representative of the whole planet? Geographically, Israel is a reflection of the whole planet. You can snow ski and water ski in the same day. You have tremendous changes in elevation. You can grow in the confines of Israel almost anything that you can grow on the planet. But not just geographically, emotionally, personally. personally. The, the, the Jewish people represent the spectrum of the world. Jewish people are among the richest and the poorest of this planet. Have made incredible contributions to medicine, to science, to law, to, to history. It's Remarkable. The sheer presence of the Jewish nation on this planet should point us to the living God. It's remarkable. I'm, I'm not just saying it because the gentleman standing in front of me was born in Israel, but it helps a little bit. You know? um, but it's, it's amazing to me. And I'm sure Steve's experienced this even in my profession, medicine. The, the, the contribution to the Jewish community to medicine is unparalleled. I had the privilege for many years of working at Mount Sinai Hospital. I learned all about Sabbath elevators, and, and it was great. We would trade off. I would do Fridays and Saturdays for my colleagues, and they would take Sundays for me. It was, it was, a, really, uh, it was a really lovely balance, and I, and I came to appreciate this nation. My Jewish colleagues in medical school used to say, Joe, come on, let's sit down. Let's go get a coffee. <clears throat> and while we're drinking coffee, um, they would say to me, teach us about our heritage. You know more about the Old Testament than we do. So I would tell them the story of Esther. I would help explain to them why, uh, usually around March or so, they'd be celebrating, celebrating the Feast of Purim. I'd help them understand what Passover meant. But here, a little bit like the Gibeonites, as we've mentioned, it might at first seem deceptive of Esther to not declare her heritage. But I think the text supports that it was an intelligent thing to do. Young people all the time who come to me and want advice right before they have that medical school interview, for example. And they say to me, shouldn't I just declare it right off in the first sentence of my interview? I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you right now, you'll probably fail your interview by that statement alone. Now, is that because we've become so unbold and so weakened that we're not willing to do that? No. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. I would never tell someone to hide, per se, their faith. But we need to deal with it intelligently. We were having a conversation yesterday, even about how I interact with patients. 
It's not fair for me as a physician to turn to my patient and say, this is your cancer, you need to have this. I would suggest that you have this kind of chemotherapy. And by the way, you need to trust Jesus today. That would be professionally inappropriate. Now you know me. I've had privilege to speak to many, many patients about the Lord Jesus. But I do it in a very careful way and in a context that won't violate my profession or have me lose my license. And so here, Esther, I think, is taking a very intelligent strategy. And she's in constant communication with her uncle. And, I mean, this book is really, frankly, more about, more about Mordecai than it is about Esther. It's probably called Esther. We don't know who wrote it. Mordecai may have written it. It's possible Ezra or Nehemiah may have written it. that We don't really know. But nonetheless, she's in constant communication with him. And I suspect, as we're going to learn from his methods, that his methods were always ultimately for the benefit of God's reputation and God's people. He was shrewd in his tactics. He was intelligent. He was honest. How many times have we said the same thing over this week? Much like Daniel who said, I'll serve the king, but I won't eat this food. We'll find with Mordecai very much the same way. I'll serve this king. I'll be very careful in how I expose my heritage But you know what? When it comes to having to bow down to one of these leaders, that's where I draw the line. And God help us, as we've said so many times this week, to know where uh, to draw the line. Down to verse 16. So Esther was taken unto the king in his royal house in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. When you talk about a rags-to-riches story, this orphan girl from a rejected nation in captivity, and now she's at the queen's level. That in itself is remarkable. We think of other individuals who have ascended to high places like Daniel, like Joseph, by the providence of God. Not that we are as, as Christians today, and I think we have to be careful when we make this distinction, and i always cautious when we talk about this, because as I mentioned in a somewhat in joking form, I don't like to make a lot of political statements. But you know, uh, although we say God bless America and I love this country, there's no such thing as a Christian country. The only thing that can be a Christian is a person. I mean, I understand what we mean by a Christian country, even a Christian school, because we want to have the tenets of that school based on Christian principles. I get that. But really, the only thing that's truly Christian is a person. And and our point and intent, and even her influence, as we're going to see, was not to, per se, make the Persian Empire a Judaic empire. We're not here to take over the politics of the United States and make it Christian. We have, like salt, as the scripture describes us, we have a preserving influence here. That after the rapture, when we're gone, like the floodgates will have been removed and there'll be sin like this planet's never seen before. But I'm not here to change the world. I'm not here to change the country. You know, the analogy that one is, I think, appropriately given, you know, the house is burning. I'm not here to get the hose and try to, to, to hose it down and repair the house. I'm here to call people out of it. That's not to say we have a, a sort of a hands-off approach. We're told to pray for our leaders. We're told to, to conduct our business in a way that honors the Lord so that we have that preserving influence. Imagine this country today without believers. 
the believers that work from everywhere from the stock market to the side of the highway. Imagine what the moral level of this country will drop to when Christians have left it. It'll be tragic. So we do have that preserving influence. But don't fool yourself to think that we're here to change the planet and make it Christian, that one day the Lord will come and establish His kingdom because we've prepared it for Him. No, the Scripture teaches the very opposite, actually, that sadly it is going to go into a downward, downward, downward spiral. But He's patient, as we've said, long-suffering, not willing that they should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 21, In those days while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those who, which kept the door were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king. So Mordecai was, was, was aware of his circumstances. He was good at his job. You want to serve the Lord, be good at your job. The Lord help you to find that balance. I'm not, to, I'm not saying that all you want to do is climb the ladder and get to the top and kick out the CEO so that you can become the CEO. And, and it's tempting to always want to have that. We got to get higher, higher, higher. But at the same time, we want a strong testimony for the Lord. And you serve the Lord as an ambassador. People are watching you. And Lord, help you to know the balance between putting too much and too little into your job. I'll confess to to all of you, that's one of the challenges I face every day. Thank God for Heather to keep me in balance and keep me in check and saying, you're putting too much time into this. You're traveling too much for that. You're doing too much for this. We all need that balance. I want to have a strong testimony at work, but I also don't want to be married to my work. (laughs) And the Lord help us to understand that. And there'll be times when you're busier and times that you uh, will be less busy. But he was good at his job and he sensed this. Verse 22, And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it to Esther the queen, and, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. So he knew that there was a threat to the king's life. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Now, one of the interesting things about this is the hanging bit. There's, again, more of these heads and things being hanged. It's, it's kind of graphic. But um, more importantly, as we'll come to learn later, nothing came good, per se, to Mordecai after this. Right? He didn't get a purple heart. He didn't get a king's seal. He didn't get a banquet for him. Nothing happened. And you think, that's not fair. Right? I mean, he saved your life. Shouldn't, shouldn't something have come to Mordecai? We don't see any bitterness from Mordecai. We don't say, okay, that's it, I'm done. You know, my boss doesn't appreciate what I can do. I'm going to take my work somewhere else. I heard there's another kingdom on the other side of the Mediterranean. Maybe I'll go down and join those Egyptians. Well, beware of the Egyptians. <laughs> no, we love the Egyptians. <laughs> that's not awkward at all. Anyway, the, uh, but he continued... Are there not times when you, as it were, go above and beyond the call of duty and it feels that you're not appropriately rewarded, whether it's from work or, frankly, amongst God's people? We do it as unto the Lord. The Lord knows, if there's anything I hope I've taught you this week, the Lord knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And it wasn't lost on the Lord. And the Lord waited until the right moment and He woke up the king in the middle of the night one night And the king couldn't sleep. And for whatever reason, the king asked for the records and wanted to find out what had happened. And he was going back through his history books. I don't know, maybe he was so pride-filled, he wanted to look back and say, oh, let me see how how prominently I feature in the history books. And all of a sudden, he realized that there was a threat in his life and it was extinguished 
because of Mordecai and nothing had been done. And so the next day he wanted to honor Mordecai. If it weren't for that timing, this book wouldn't be here. Simple point. Don't question the timing of God. He knows. He knows. And sometimes it hurts. And you want it done now or yesterday? God was going to vindicate for uh, Mordecai. Come down to uh, chapter 3. After these things did uh, uh, king, uh, did the king promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. So um, it seems quite striking that the very next verse, after Mordecai is not promoted for saving the king's life, that Haman gets promoted. Men and women uh, who work in the secular sphere, as it were, has this ever happened to you? You, you did the right thing. You did the thing that supported the company or the firm or the project or whatever it was. And, and literally, if you will, the adversary or the person that um, is, is, is doing the very opposite is the one who gets a promotion. And, and you think to yourself, what? Like, how, is that, how is that possible? It happened. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not. I'm suggesting he didn't bow because he didn't get promoted, but because he would draw a line. Yes, I'll pay reverence to the king. Yes, I'll serve the king. But when it comes to bowing, and this was a, a Persian phenomenon, it was a Babylonian phenomenon. To a certain extent, it was even a Greek and a Roman phenomenon. Remember, the Roman emperors basically wanted to be considered as gods and have people bow before them. And God bless Mordecai for saying, I will serve you, I will save your life, I will rescue you, I will do what's best for you, but you want me to bow down to you or one of your subjects? I'm sorry, that's the line I have to draw. As we said so frequently this week, as believers, God help us to find those lines to draw. And now it came to pass when they, uh, uh, sorry, uh, verse 3, Then the king's servants, which were of the king's gate, sent unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Oh, wow. Now it gets thicker. Now it's just that he's not bowing. And you know what? He's a Jew. Well, that raises the anti-Semitism in the heart of Haman. Uh, and as we see in the next verse, and when Haman saw the Mordecai bowed now, nor did reverence, then Haman was full of wrath, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had shown him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Assyrius, even the people of Mordecai. So now you could argue, wait a second, Mordecai made it worse for everybody. He, it wasn't just that now all of a sudden Haman wanted him dead. Now he wanted his whole people dead. It must have been hard for Mordecai. I mean, Lord, let them take my life, but not Esther. Not, not, not my people. Well, time is going quickly, so I want to be careful. We don't read too much together. Uh, but you probably know how the story unfolds, that Haman goes to the king and now starts to make it clear to the king that there's a problem in the, in the nation. Now that he's got the ear of the king, you know, now that he's uh, BFFs with the king, 
He can say we need to expunge these Jewish people. And so Haman uh, cast lots to sort of figure out when this is going to happen. And in a moment of irony, uh, not that I'm much of a dice player, but, you know, imagine he's throwing dice to figure out when are we going to make this happen. And based on what he what he throws, we'll decide when it's going to happen. And he and he and he and he throws double sixes. Right. So it's almost 12 months later that this is going to happen. That's actually ultimately the word lots or casting lots is what brings the word pure or purim to us. Which later on, of course, uh, even to this day is celebrated by the Jewish nation. And so in, in a moment of irony, I bet you he was hoping to, to, uh, to, to roll uh, double ones, for example. You know, snake eyes, I think they call it, so that maybe this could happen next month. But even in that, perhaps, I'm not saying that the Lord was in the one casting lots, although we do see a historical uh, connection with the Lord casting lots, like with, with uh, Jonah, for example, and other situations, even how they cast lots for his garments, uh, that God still has authority over that. And so there's going to be a time of delay, which allowed the preparation. And as you know, and hopefully you know the story quite well, that this gave opportunity for Mordecai and Esther to think about how they might be able to do this. And they developed a plan to tell the king and speak to the king for her to expose herself as a Jewish woman to see if there was a way to, uh, to, to, to stop this from happening. And she took an incredible risk. Even if you are the queen, you don't just walk into the king's chamber. You need permission. I mean, you talk about ego, right? You don't even have permission to knock at my door. Can you imagine that? Imagine us putting that out the sign up my office. You don't even have the privilege of knocking at my door. Only I will come to you. It's redonkulous, right? But she took that risk and she walked into the king and the king held out his scepter to her. Because she had gained favor because of the time and the effort that she had shown to reverence the king, to support the king's life. She had developed a testimony with this king. Let me suggest to you, this is a lot like Nehemiah. Do you think the king would have noticed that Nehemiah was sad had he not had a good working relationship with Nehemiah? When he said to him, why is your countenance sad? And then Nehemiah took the opportunity. So sure enough, the queen takes the opportunity and she says, I want to have a banquet and we want to invite Haman. Of course, Haman had been promoted. And so when Haman heard this, he's like, "Uh I get to have a dinner with the king. I'm sitting at the big leagues now. And how ironic that that very night, the king can't sleep as we've described. He calls for the books and he realizes that Mordecai is the one who should be promoted. And and in in an act of incredible irony he says to Haman you know Haman how would we promote somebody if we wanted to do that and Haman's thinking to himself he's talking about me and before long you know the story well the king said to him you know we want to promote and Haman's waiting for the word Haman meanwhile back at his home Haman's built a gallows to find a way to kill Mordecai to hang him and the king says, I want to promote Mordecai. <coughs> Sorry, a king. Can you say it one more, one more time? God's timing. And sure enough, it all gets exposed. Haman ends up 
dying in his own gallow, which in itself, I mean, this is irony upon irony. You can't, you can't write this stuff, right? Only the Lord can write this stuff, if I can put it that way. I don't mean to refer to the Word of God as stuff, but I'm just using the, the colloquial expression. You know, you can't write this. And the book ends with the glorification, literally, and the exaltation of Mordecai. Come, let's just read one, a couple more verses in chapter 9 before we leave a few lessons with you. I'll steal an extra few minutes because we started a little bit late. But Esther chapter 9, go towards the end of the book. And this is what sets the foundation of the Feast of Purim today. That when Mordecai, there, when the Jews were delivered, it wasn't just that they were going to protect Mordecai or Esther, but the whole of the nation. And let's read here... Uh, um, Let's turn to chapter, uh, so chapter 9, verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews that were in the provinces of the king, both nigh and far, to establish this among them, that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar, the 15th day of the same yearly, which of course becomes the Feast of Purim, as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month uh, which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy. So there's Mordecai fearing that instead of his just life being taken, that the whole nation was going to be taken. And now the whole nation is not only just spared, they didn't just escape being spared. Now it's established a beautiful feast for them. Isn't that just the way God does things? Let me tell you, when God saved you, he's not just rescuing you from hell. He's making you conform to the image of his son. What a God is this? What kind of God is this that wants to do that for me? Not just spare, just sparing me from the depths of hell would be salvation indeed. But one day to be like him? To give me all of you to come with me? That's the kind of God that we serve. And from morning into a good day, that they should make them a day of feasting and joy, of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. And that's what happens now. If you have friends of yours, Jewish friends, that may be um, at least somewhat religious, you know, unfortunately, the majority of Jews on the planet right now are what we might consider secular Jews, not particularly religious. But if they keep the Feast of Purim, this is what they do. They get together. They have a meal. They give money to the poor. They give gifts amongst themselves. They celebrate this very day. And, and, and they sing with joy uh, uh, and bring Mordecai's name uh, into, into modern history. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pure, or cast lots as we said, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters uh, that his wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that... He and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Wherefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pure. Therefore all the words of this letter, and of that which had been seen concerning the matter, and that which had come unto them. The Jews ordained, and took upon them, and upon their seed, and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, that it should not fail, that they would keep these two days according to their writing, according to the appointed time, every year. And so they carried on to today. So, what can we say in conclusion here? We're looking at your at your um, uh, handout, as we've mentioned. Let's just very quickly look at these major lessons as we come to a close. God's care and protection, even in the potential, if you will, disobedience of them still being in captivity. God still cared for his people. 
I'm not saying that God is promoting disobedience. I'm just trying to help you appreciate the compassion in the heart of God. Moses lost his temper and struck that rock when he was supposed to speak to it, violating the type that we even sing about, nevermore shall God Jehovah smite the shepherd with the sword. And it was a wrong thing for him to do, but water still came out of it. God still blessed them. If God only blessed us when we were perfectly obedient, I don't know about you, I'd never get blessing. But he giveth and giveth and giveth again. God remains sovereign despite these powerful kings that can have marble in their gardens. I don't know how you pull that off. But he's still on the throne, isn't he? This king thinks he's taking care of business. And he has decrees that once they're made, they can't be reversed. I mean, how arrogant is that? imagine making a law that could never ever be reversed as the persians they're good at that let me tell you that god still remains on the throne the oppression of women but their exaltation as we've tried to describe uh, earlier on in the message humility versus pride what a contrast you see between mordecai because mordecai realized it wasn't about him humble thyself under the mighty hand of god and he will exalt you in due time isn't that a beautiful verse to summarize the life of Mordecai? That could have been uh, uh, what was, was shared at his funeral. Which, by the way, there's no mention of the death of Mordecai. That's not to say he didn't die. But it's sort of a fitting end to the book that we never see the end of his influence over the Jewish people. By contrast, Haman is a classic example of pride. So obsessed with himself that his pride ultimately consumed him. As we mentioned, what an irony that the very gallows he built to kill someone else ended up taking his own life. I mean, Hollywood can't write that kind of stuff, as I've mentioned. Mordecai's service, but unwilling to bow. We've said this several times. He served the king. This was a pagan king that didn't want really anything to do with the Lord, yet he was still willing to serve him, but he drew the line at the bowing. The importance of testimony to the ungodly. This testimony that Esther had it was, it was a repeated event, wasn't it? It wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't just because she was pretty. The person who was the keeper of the women was impressed with her. The king was impressed with her. Everybody was impressed with her. She had a disposition and a spirit, and I suggest that it had to do with her relationship with the Lord. She wanted to do what was right before God. Uh, easier me- uh, Esther's methods of words and ways to win the king. She took risks. She was bold, but she was also respectful. She didn't walk into that interview and say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and you have to accept me to this program because I'm on a mission from God. Imagine starting that conversation. Even if I were interviewing you, I would say, like, we need to bring it down a notch there, Scotty. <laughs> That's a little, little hefty. But she had that delicate balance. And yet, as I've listed in, in major lesson number eight, she took risks for God. When, when people questioned whether or not she should go into the presence of the king, look, you go into the presence of the king, he can lop your head off. She said, if I perish, I perish. But this I have to do. By contrast, as I've listed here, Hebrews 4.16, we come boldly to the throne of grace. Let me tell you, every time you come to the throne, the king is going to reach out his scepter to you. You never have to be afraid to come to God. Why? Because we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Marvelous. God's intervention in the king's lack of sleep. Even in that, 
we wonder sometimes, Lord, how are you going to do this? I mean, we're organizing this banquet, and we want to tell him things, but we're not really sure. So they had their plan, and then God trumped their plan with a better plan. Has God ever done that to you in your life? You're like, Lord, it's going to work this way. We're going to do this, we're going to do this, it's all going to work out. All of a sudden the Lord says, you know what, I've got a different plan, and um, my plan's better. Oh, what a God we have. It gives us better plans. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Haman sowed hatred, bitterness, pride, and it came back to him. It's a, it's a principle that goes beyond believers and unbelievers, if you will. It's a principle of the planet. That if I sow corn, I'm not going to reap wheat. It is in the physical sense. It's also in the spiritual and emotional sense. As I mentioned before, their victory was more than lack of extermination. This was an endorsement of the Jewish nation. And that Feast of Purim, as we mentioned, still carries on today. Check your calendar. Find out when the next Feast of Purim is. And enjoy it. Speak to your Jewish friends or colleagues and have them tell you what do they do on Purim. What is it? How is it that they celebrate this marvelous story? At the end of the day, we know the story speaks to us more than anything else of the marvel of the God that we have. Let's pray. Father, we are particularly grateful to be here today. What a blessing just to be here, let alone to enjoy this beauty, let alone to enjoy this fellowship and this ministry. Father, we pray earnestly that we would come to understand the providence of God in our lives. Father, what a beautiful story of Mordecai and Esther. Uh, God, uh, help us to know and understand that thy ways are so far above ours. Help us to be humble. Humble ourselves under that hand that one day will be exalted. Father, bless us now. Encourage us over the course of the day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.